Christian radio programs all have a distinguishing name. Grace to you, insight for living, a new beginning, focus on the family, the connection, the active word, somebody loves you. If the Apostle Paul had a radio program, I'm pretty sure it would have been called, What Shall We Say Then? Those are the opening words of verse 30, but it's the fifth time he's used that phrase in Romans. It indicates he's about to draw a conclusion, but more than that, an inevitable conclusion. It means he has done more than prove his position biblically and that there's no other possible conclusion, and so he can say, what shall we say then? This is the only answer. And he uses the word we as if to say that the Holy Spirit, who had inspired his reasonings and arguments, had brought all of them together to this understanding. What is it Paul had proved? Well, in a nutshell, he had proved that God was not unrighteous for setting Israel aside and for saving Gentiles directly with the gospel. And so let's look at verses 30 and 31. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Righteousness means having a right relationship with God. There are two and only two ways of attaining a right relationship with God. One way is to pursue it by keeping the law of God as revealed to mankind by Moses. You can, by the way, technically be righteous by keeping the law. But you must keep it perfectly and not just outwardly, but inwardly. Only Jesus Christ, the God-man, was ever able to perfectly keep the law, and only he among all the human race after Adam and Eve was born without a sin nature. And so technically, you could attain righteousness by keeping the law. It's just that no one can do it. The only one who ever did was Jesus uh, and his situation was somewhat unique. The other way of having a right relationship with God is to believe God and have him declare you righteous on the basis of your faith uh, and what Jesus has done on your behalf. Of course, the Bible way of righteousness is by faith. We are accepted as righteous and treated as righteous by God on account of what the Lord has done. He was made sin, we are made righteousness. On the cross, Jesus was treated as if he were a sinner, though he is perfectly holy and pure, and we are treated as if we were righteous, though we are not. On account of what the Lord has endured on our behalf, we are treated as if we had entirely fulfilled the law of God and had never become exposed to its penalty. We have received this gift of righteousness by faith, not by works. And so we believe what Jesus has done on our behalf, as our substitute, and as we learned way earlier in Romans, God accounts it to us, he credits it to us as righteousness. Now, Paul had proven earlier in Romans that righteousness was always by faith. You remember he appealed to both Abraham and David as examples of Jews who believed God and were declared righteous on the basis of faith. Here in his conclusion to chapter nine, Paul was making an application of righteousness by faith. The Jews, you remember, were wondering how could God set aside the nation of Israel and offer his salvation directly to Gentile nations? 
it wasn't even so much that Gentiles were getting saved. Gentiles got saved in the Old Testament. Uh, it was part of God's plan for Israel to be a light to the entire world. Uh, even though the Jews, you know, the non-believing Jews uh, had a prejudice against the Gentiles, uh, it wasn't a totally unusual situation that a Gentile would get saved. But they were getting saved entirely apart from Judaism. Their salvation seemed to have nothing to do with the law whatsoever. They were not being required to be circumcised or to keep the Sabbath or any such thing. There was a notable church council in the book of Acts right around chapter 15 where uh, these Judaizing teachers were trying to establish that Paul's preaching to the Gentiles was, was bogus because the Gentiles were getting saved without converting to Judaism. And uh, the leaders there of the church at the time, Peter and James and all those guys, they decided that, yeah, G Gentiles don't need to become Jews in order to be saved. Um, in fact, we're, as Jews, getting saved just like they are. And the only thing that they told Gentiles to do or encouraged them to do is just don't stumble Jews. Don't go around drinking blood. That's an easy one. Or eating things strangled. All right. I guess that was, you know, there was a, some really hot food joints there where you could get strangled blood food or something. But, uh, and so they just basically said, we don't want you to stumble our Jewish people. Just be sensitive to Judaism. But you don't have to do anything uh, in order to be saved uh, beyond believing in Jesus Christ. So Paul reminded them that salvation, even among Jews, it was always by faith. It was never by keeping the law. Therefore, when the leaders of the nation of Israel officially rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah, they were also rejecting salvation by faith in favor of keeping the law. They were basically saying, we don't want Jesus as our Savior. We want to keep doing what we've been doing to relate to God. We don't want to have anything to do with this faith business we reject him, we're gonna go on to attain righteousness by keeping the law of Moses. But Paul says Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. It's impossible to do so. And so God, therefore, has set them aside for a time and directs uh, and is going directly to the Gentiles to call out a people for himself made up of any nation, tongue, tribe, and people who believe on Jesus Christ. These people, this group, we call it the church. Born on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two and awaiting the resurrection and rapture at the return of the Lord in the clouds. And that will be those people saved from the day of Pentecost until the rapture of the church. Uh, they constitute this mysterious, wonderful group of people that we are a part of called the church. Verse 32, why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Why didn't the Jews attain righteousness? Well, as we've just said, and we always point out, they thought righteousness came to them because they were ethnic Jews who were keeping in some measure anyway 
God's law. Now, I can't really speak uh, for a first century Jew because I don't know what the total mindset was, but I know when I was involved in the religious tradition of the Roman Catholic Church, which is, uh, we'll see a little bit later, uh, is a works-oriented religion, I understood that I wasn't really a great person. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't fooling anybody. Uh, I, I, I wasn't priest material, whatever that was. And, uh, but I thought that since I was born Italian and I was Catholic and I did a few Catholic things, that was gonna be enough righteousness for me to get to heaven. I would attain salvation somehow through that system uh, because I, I probably wasn't gonna murder anybody uh, or be a serial killer or anything. You know, I was, I was gonna you know, just live a normal life uh, and, and have that on my side. Uh, and, and so, you know, in some measure, I was keeping God's law, I guess, as I understood it. <clears throat> and so uh, that's what I thought, and that's, a, I believe, what a lot of Jews thought in the first century. Now, earlier in chapter nine, Paul had established and he, where he said, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. He meant that there were three ways to be descended from Abraham to be considered Abraham's seed. Number one, all ethnic Jews are Israel as the physical descendants of Abraham. And so if, if, if you're a Jew, physically speaking, then you're a descendant of Abraham, you're Israel, but not every Jew is saved. Those Jews who like Abraham believe God are saved because they're declared righteous by God. These are both physical and spiritual descendants of Abraham. So that's pretty obvious. You can be a physical descendant of Abraham but not a spiritual descendant or you can be both a physical and spiritual descendant of Abraham. You can be a non-saved Jew, you can be a saved Jew. And then if you read the Abrahamic covenant, God's promise to Abraham, there's some a, a verbiage in there that applies to Gentiles and how they're gonna be blessed. And so Gentiles who are saved by faith, just like Abraham, are also considered his spiritual offspring, but they are not Israel. Just because you're the spiritual offspring of Abraham doesn't mean you're also a Jew. And this is something we keep distinct. They inherit, we inherit the promises of God made to non-Jews in the Abrahamic covenant. We talked a lot about this last week, how that we keep these groups distinct. Now the Jews did not admit their inability to keep the law perfectly and turn by faith to God for forgiveness. Consequently, Paul establishes here that they stumbled over what he calls the stumbling stone. Now what is that? Well, it's the one that Isaiah had warned them about and so Paul in verse 33 he quotes from Isaiah, actually two passages in Isaiah that he uh, puts together. It says, as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Jesus Christ is identified as the stumbling stone by the apostle Peter in his letters, 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Jesus also referred 
as stumbling individuals in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. Now, the first century Jews stumbled over Jesus because of many things. You could just go back over the career of Jesus and realize at every point he caused offense to these first century Jews. Some were stumbled by the manner of his birth. They just didn't believe he was born of a virgin. And uh, in his ministry, you remember, while he was on uh, ministering in the three and a half years, he was accused of being illegitimate. The Jews said, well, we, we know who our father is. Wow, that's nasty. That's like what they do in the English parliament, you know, where they insult each other all the time. I, I love that. That's, that's the only thing I like about the English parliament is that there's insults flying back and forth. There's a famous exchange, I forget the individuals, I, I don't know if anybody even remembers, but, but uh, it's between a, a, a guy and a gal, you know, in the English parliament, and, and the woman says to him, if you were my husband, I would poison your tea. And he responds with that British wit, if I was your husband and you were my wife, I would drink it. I don't know what you say after that, you know. It's, it's just like one of those touche moments, you know. So, uh, so the, you know, the Jews, they said, well, we know who our father is. And Jesus, you know, unruffled, he said, well, yeah, I know who your father is too. It's the devil. You think you're of your father Abraham, but you're of your father the devil. So if you want to accuse Jesus of being illegitimate, he'll tell you, well, you want to know what? You're of the devil. So, uh, but they were stumbled by that. It was, it was a hard thing to understand Obviously, you think, well, yeah, that's really difficult to be born of a virgin. That's so unique. However, they had Isaiah who told them that that was going to happen. And for a Jew who really understood the problem of sin and God's solution, it makes perfect sense, even though you can't explain the virgin birth, that there would be a virgin birth. But it stumbled the Jews. Some were stumbled by his lowly parentage. He was the son of a carpenter, uh, which you know, wasn't really the greatest trade uh, and working with your hands and all of that. And, and so uh, you know, the, I'm sure that the Jews felt that their, uh, their Messiah would come from more of a, uh, you know, a, a status. Some were stumbled by his childhood residence. Remember that famous phrase, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean... You know, where did this guy come from? He didn't come from any of the major cities. He's not really even familiar with Jerusalem. He got lost at the temple one time, you know? And, and so Nazareth, really our, our savior, our Messiah is a, is a carpenter's son of questionable birth from Nazareth. And so it's not looking too good. Some were offended by his plain appearance. Isaiah 53, 2 says of Jesus, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Now, I don't think this means that Jesus was um, ugly or not handsome or anything like that. It means he didn't stand out. He, he looked like the average Jewish individual of his day. I mean, you didn't, it, it, unlike the, I understand the paintings, you know, the Renaissance paintings and all where they, they put halos on people to, you know, so that you, to symbolize their sainthood and stuff. But Jesus didn't look like any of the Jesuses in all of the English-speaking movies that we've seen. 
with blue eyes and blonde hair and just hugely, you know, you, you wouldn't really be drawn to him as he wasn't taller than everybody else, he wasn't bigger than anybody else, he wasn't more handsome than any, he was just average. And we like our heroes to be more than average, don't we? There has to be something about them. This is why, this is kind of a pet thing of mine, this is why whenever Samson is portrayed, He's always portrayed like an Arnold Schwarzenegger type guy, right? Because he did all these feats of strength. It's no big deal for a guy who bench presses 500 pounds to do a feat of strength. I think uh, that uh, probably Samson looked more like Jason Alexander. (laughs) And because people, you know, they thought, man, how did he carry those gates so far? He killed all those people with the jawbone of a donkey? What is, what's going on with this guy? I mean, you don't look at Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime and say, well, how did you, uh, how did you do that? How did you bench press all that weight? Duh, I'm a weightlifter. And so I think you have, to, you have to really scale down your Samson pictures. He's like a scraggly little guy, one of those wiry little guys, you know, but he's killing people left and right. And God is, is just blowing their minds. Many were offended by the company Jesus kept. The Pharisees and scribes murmured, Luke 15, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And you can go on and on and on. Almost everything Jesus was and did offended the Jews, culminating in the fact that he he died on a cross and that he claimed his, you know, his disciples claimed that he rose from the dead. All of that was terribly offensive to them. And so they rejected Jesus. And it's so hard for us, it's really hard for us to put ourselves in the position of a first century Jew with their expectation and all and to realize just how offensive Jesus Christ could be. And yet, how all of that made perfect sense when the scripture is illuminated to you and you see that, that, that God... Uh, is being revealed in his mercy and grace and forgiveness and love through this humble life, through Jesus making himself uh, less and uh, serving the human race. Jesus was not at all what they expected, and so they rejected him. And with him, they rejected the offer of righteousness by faith. They said, "If this is the, this isn't the way of salvation. This isn't how we want to relate to God. We're going to do it through the law." And so Paul quoted from Isaiah 8 and 28, combining the two statements to indicate the two contrasting reactions by men to Jesus. Paul was telling his readers and his listeners that the nation of Israel officially reacted to Jesus as an offense, and therefore they stumbled over him. Meanwhile, whoever believes on him, Jew or Gentile, will be saved by the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, we're all on board with the righteousness that comes by faith. We don't have a problem with that. It doesn't mean, however, that we are free from thinking that we still must do something or keep something or observe something in order to really be saved or to maintain our right standing with God. I was reading a chapter in a book by Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum in which he cited Jewish friends of his who think it's ironic that Christians accuse the Jews of trying to keep the law while simultaneously adding their own works of righteousness to salvation by faith. Baptism is one of those works. It's, it's an easy one to find references for. 
One author noted the following, and I quote, he says, there are several religious groups which teach that baptism is necessary for salvation. Among them are several Church of Christ groups, some branches of the Christian church, Disciples of Christ, and many small groups in the Christian tradition. Of course, the largest and most well-known of the baptismal regenerationists, people who believe that you need baptism to be regenerated and saved, by far the largest, most well-known group is the Roman Catholic Church. Such groups teach that water baptism is absolutely necessary and essential to the salvation of the soul. Now, to make it even worse for Roman Catholics, the official catechism of the Roman Catholic Church goes on to state, and I quote, to receive the free gift of salvation... Catholics must, until their last breath, maintain the righteousness that they receive during the sacrament of baptism. Ongoing, so right there, you have to be baptized to be saved. It's a free gift, but with every breath, you have to fight to maintain it. Ongoing righteousness is maintained through the reception of the sacraments of confession and Holy Eucharist. While belonging to the visible body of Christ, Catholics recognize that they absolutely need the sacraments of the visible body of Christ, the Catholic Church, as their assurance of righteousness and salvation. Hence, believers require the Catholic Church as the fullness of the means of salvation. And so in a nutshell, what that is teaching is that you're saved by grace. It's a free gift of God. As long as you're baptized and fight tooth and nail by keeping all of the sacraments until the very end with your last breath, otherwise you're going to lose that salvation that was freely given you by God. And so it's very much a religion of works. And I can see where a Jew would be chagrined at the idea that we accuse them of being legalists when so many uh, so-called Christian groups have laws of their own that are uh, probably worse because they're not really even born out of Scripture. They're just made up. And so it's easier than you might think to fall into thinking that salvation once received must be maintained by good works. The Apostle Peter went to visit the Gentile church at Antioch. It was the custom of the early church to share a meal at least once a week. They called it the love feast. We call them potlucks. Uh, Peter, though a Jew, had been set free from all Jewish dietary laws. He could eat anything he wanted with whomever he wanted. He enjoyed this freedom of grace until some Jews came from Jerusalem. Fearing criticism, Peter gradually withdrew from the Gentiles. His hypocrisy led others, including even Barnabas, into hypocrisy. He was causing a serious division in the church between Jews and Gentiles. The Apostle Paul had to openly, publicly rebuke Peter. Man, wow, that must have been a heavy night. Uh, but Peter received it. The point for us is, if Peter could fall back into this kind of thinking and behaving, so can I. In fact, by default, I always fall back to a position of thinking there is something I must do to attain or to maintain my salvation. It's, it's just a part of the fabric of who we are that we want to do works uh, as a, a necessary part of our salvation. But there aren't any works that I can do. The Christian life is by faith from start to finish. So how do we live it? We live it by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and by walking with God as our Father and with Jesus as our friend. And if we maintain 
that attitude, those relationships, uh, the Lord will lead and guide and direct us. There are good works for us to discover and to follow in, as we learned on Sunday, uh, but they're not uh, to maintain our salvation. Uh, They are to enjoy a relationship with the living God. So praise the Lord for that.